Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on IFA Talk. I'm Sue Whitbread, and I'm editor here at IFA Magazine. And today we're talking about the state of the economy, uh, something that's posing quite a challenge for advisors. And my guest is ideally placed to shed some light on what's going on and tell us what advisors really need to know. And it's Dr. Niall O'Connor, who is a fund manager at Brooks MacDonald. And Niall, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's really good to talk to you. Hi, Sue. Lovely to be here. So shall we get going then with the, the situation about the state of the global economy, particularly with a focus on how things are here in the UK? Uh, let's start with the R word, uh, recession. Do you think that there will be a recession or, or even something that maybe feels like a recession? And if so, what does that mean for investment markets and for investors? Well, that's the really big question, isn't it, at the moment? Um, mm -hmm. And really, the concept of a recession and a recession in the UK or US or both has really been very much consensus since uh, autumn last year. And that surprised me somewhat because things actually felt pretty good end of last year. And I was quite surprised that people were talking about a recession. I mean, mm -hmm. Clearly, interest rates are rising. So there's a burden on households and, and corporates, for that matter, with mortgages and with corporate debt and, and energy prices were going higher. But the energy price rises always felt a bit transient to me. Um, and, and clearly they've come off a little bit. But I asked myself the question, well, let's analyze this. What were the prerequisites for recession? What's happened before previous recessions? And, and some of the things were slightly, slightly surprising because generally speaking, the economy is very good before a recession. So you get things like purchasing managers indices tend to be very high before a recession. And, and, and that's what we had at the end of last year. The labor market always uh, generally, again, tends to be very tight just before recessions, which again, slightly, uh, uh, maybe slightly not so obvious. And again, we've got a quite a tight labor market. Um, very often you see oil, uh, the oil price spiking, certainly as a percentage of GDP. That's what we had in the 70s, of course, and in 2007. Didn't really spike that much, particularly from a GDP perspective. If you, if you think about oil in real terms, it's not actually that high. Still well below 2007 or 2011. Um, what else have we had? Recent, the stock market, generally speaking, reaches an all-time high before recessions, but Clearly, we've had a big turn down in the stock market last year. Sentiment tends to drop, um, which it really did uh, towards the end of last year, but actually it's been picking up since. It's been picking up since autumn. So again, sentiment indices don't suggest there's a recession. Um, and another, two, I suppose the two final things are that generally speaking, you have very low market volatility. So the VIX tends to be very low. In other words, people aren't scared. People call the VIX the fear index. And, and what you have is a prolonged period where people, maybe people aren't scared enough. Um, so there's increased risk taking. And, and again, that's not been true. Volatility, of course, in equities last year has been quite high. Um, and, and finally, the other thing that you don't tend to see before recessions is everybody forecasting a recession. They do tend to come and whack you from behind. Mm, that's um, true. So, you know, the fact that everyone's been predicting this makes me think, well, actually, maybe it's not going to happen. Mm. Now, why might it not happen? Well, of course, the savings ratio has been extremely high for some period of time with all the COVID handouts that we had in, in the UK through furlough mm. and in the US through stimulus checks. Basically, people ended up saving 
um, between one and two months pay, uh, take home mm -hmm. pay. And they've used some of that up this year, but, but probably less than half. So household balance sheets and likewise corporate balance sheets look pretty strong. Um, and we're seeing that a little bit through things like people spending money on holidays. So if you look at IAG, the parent company, British Airways or, or Jet2 or EasyJet, the share prices there are, are close to year highs because mm. the number of domestic flights, or domestic and short haul flights people are doing is actually well above pre-COVID levels. Uh, international or long haul, not quite back there yet. But, you know, people are still spending money. Mm. Now you said there might be what type of recession might there be and you know clearly there is going to be some sort of downturn but i think what we're going to see is a very polarized recession and very much split on income deciles so if you look there's some interesting which survey data out which suggested seven people had missed a debt payment in april and then three people had missed mortgage payments and 60 percent of people were making adjustments in their monthly spending so what I think is, if you look at the top 40% of income earners in the UK, they're not really going to notice an increase in energy bills or an increase in mortgage costs. Uh, but if you look at the bottom three deciles, I think there already is a recession there. People are using food banks more than ever and so on. So, so there will be a recession, but it's only going to be felt by some people. Uh, but I think from an investment perspective, from a corporate perspective, um, we're probably not going to see a recession. And I guess from, from a financial advisor's point of view, given that our audience are financial advisors, Advisors that that those those people who would be more resilient to today's economic economic conditions are those who are who are likely to be their clients and so those exactly and yeah so most so most IFAs I meet also don't think there's going to be a recession but maybe that as you say that's a biased subset because the people mm -hmm. that use IFAs are, are necessarily the ones that are going to feel the recession much much less yeah they're a bit protected aren't they. Yes. Yeah, true. Okay, then let's move on to inflation. One of the biggest sort of protagonists of this sort of slowdown in global growth. Um, how, how sticky do you think inflation is likely to be in, in the months ahead? I know that it, it, the prognosis have changed, haven't they, dramatically swinging one way or the other. But it'd be interesting to see what you think. The, the, yeah, the as we were talking about earlier, I mean, energy prices have come off an awful lot from the peak and energy was a big, big driver of the increase in inflation. Uh, we also had a, a backlog of goods, basically closed supply chains, um, meaning that the increased demand for things we had post-COVID uh, couldn't be met by supply. So we had a sort of double whammy of inflation. Headline inflation got incredibly high. Both of those are now easing. Um, and maybe you've got to be slightly cynical of the government promising to halve inflation because definitionally it's going to halve anyway, just through base effects. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and yeah, <laughs> that, that's an easy one to achieve, even I could yeah. do that. Um, and with energy prices still dropping and, and supply chains slowly coming unstuck, I think any, the headline inflation numbers will fall quite dramatically. Mm. But I don't think we're going to see the end of inflation. I think we've gone from a regime shift um, from a, a a low level of inflation to a more moderate level of inflation. And I think part of the reason for that is if you look, central banks have walked themselves into a corner. The Bank of England looking at uh, maybe one more interest rate rise. Um, you know, variable rate mortgages now are very expensive and it feels like people are starting to squeak in terms of mortgage payments. So it doesn't really feel like the Bank of England, to me anyway, that the Bank of England can increase rates much more, um, even if they needed to, to, to uh, damp down inflation. And as a result of that, I think inflation is going to stay higher for longer. So the expression we use here is that four is the new two, where, where two percent used to be the central bank targets. Uh, I think it's going to end up close to four. And 
that in some ways is done out of necessity because you can't increase rates that much more. But I think in some ways it's also very useful for sort of society in general, because if you look at government debt to GDP is very high. If you look at personal debt to GDP is also quite high, especially in America. Um, and having a higher rate of inflation and, and commensurately slightly higher wage increases is a good way of getting rid of debt because the only two ways you can get rid of debt are, are, are either through default or through, through inflation. Uh, and inflation's tends to be the preferred method uh, mechanism. So I, I think running at 4% would suit everybody for a while. Mm, yeah, fair point. And what about the, uh, the the banking crises that have been affecting markets, particularly in the US? Do you think that that may have helped central banks in some ways with their inflation targets? Yes, yeah, certainly a bit of a slowdown in the economy would, would help a little bit, although actually, interestingly enough, the evidence of that is, is, is a little bit mixed um, and, and a bit of a banking crisis um, might help at the margin again. But I think overall, you know, the big drivers are going to be energy costs um, mm. and corporate profitability. Um, yeah. rather than the banking crisis and the banking crisis it's a curious one actually because it's it's very confined to the regional banks this is not a big bank crisis um, and uh, I, I'm an ex-banking analyst myself and I'm fascinated by this because it's not that this isn't the GFC this is the savings and loans crisis this is a whole lot of banks which are actually pretty safe banks uh, but have basically got short-term deposits and invested in long-term assets so it's an asset maturity mismatch rather than a credit crisis so i think you're right credit crisis is, would probably be more useful if you can use that word for reducing inflation um, whereas the savings and loans crisis will just keep bumbling on for quite some time you are listening to ifa talk ifa magazine's weekly podcast subscribe to us on spotify and apple podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available and follow us on linkedin twitter and instagram at ifa magazine uh, I'm going to change the theme a little bit now, and I'm, I'd like to ask you about investment trusts. Hmm. It's a, an asset class which I must confess I think is is really attractive, and it always amazes me how it, they're, they're not more popular. Uh, I guess they're not always flavour of the month, are they? And okay, we've got discounts on premium, and that kind of plays into that. But I wonder if you think that they are currently oversold. Yeah, the Defence Capital Fund is, is roughly just over half of it is in investment trusts. And okay. you know, as you say, sometimes they're flavour of the month, sometimes they're not. I think they're not mm -hmm. at the moment, uh, but they're mm -hmm. a very interesting way for us to get exposure to various alternative asset classes that we couldn't do otherwise. And also a very interesting way of playing this slightly higher inflation for longer because we have a lot of real assets within the investment trust space, things like renewable energy companies or, or even REITs in the property space. Um, but there's been a very interesting dynamic, and I, th I think they are quite out of favour and, and probably oversold at the moment. So, you know, a, a, a bit of history. What, what happened was we had a long period of time where investment trusts were very popular. There were a lot of new investment trusts, particularly in the alternative space, launched, um, you know, particularly during um, even late 2020 and, and, and 2021. But what's happened subsequent to that is that the demand for investment trusts has, has dropped quite dramatically. And that's come from three different places, I suppose. Uh, the first has been outflows from open-ended funds, because traditionally open-ended funds have been large holders. Where they've been redeemed on, because I think a lot of people have switched into investing in, let's say, corporate bonds at the moment. Um, so as a result of that, they're selling the open-ended funds. So if you get a redemption from an open-ended fund, you have to sell something and investment trusts generally is the thing that gets sold. So that, that's caused discounts to widen. 
the, the other issue is just liquidity, because if you think, you know, and in the wealth management space, which is tends to again be a large hold of investment trusts, wealth management mergers have just made wealth managers bigger and bigger. So this, the minimum size that you can invest in investment trust has gone up. We, we used to have IPOs at 100 million, then they became 250, and 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 now probably 500 million is about the minimum scale you can have for an investment trust. So people are selling things just because they don't want to be caught out from a liquidity perspective. Uh, and finally, one thing that everyone seems to be focused on this year is MIFID costs. Um, you know, I've personally got a bit of a bugbear because I don't think investment trusts should be, it should incur MIFID costs when the equivalent equities don't, um, but you know, I don't make the rules. But if you're having to report to your end clients a higher notional cost, then clearly that makes you a forced seller of the higher cost ones. So we've seen big selling of investment trusts. And, and, and of course, when you've got excess sales, then the discounts widen. I mean, overall in investment trusts, I think we've seen discounts widen. Um, so for equity investment trusts, so just an investment trust which invests in, let's say, large cap equities, so you know what the nav is there, uh, the discounts are, are close to record highs, but you're only talking sort of 8-10%, so you know, not substantial, but, but quite wide, particularly when you know the, the vehicle is worth more than that. We, generally speaking, don't invest in an equity investment trust, we prefer the alternative space, um, so something like a renewable energy company or a private equity company. Um, and there the nerves are a bit less certain they're generally calculated um, mm -hmm. with a reference to mark to market but they're calculated with the dcf and there the the discounts are incredibly wide in fact even wider than they were in march 2020 uh, so we have anything from from 40 up to 60 percent discounts even on sort of good high quality infrastructure assets so we're seeing some very very wide discounts now that's sort of talking about the demand side and the impact it's had but i think we're close to a turning point or at a turning point at the moment because the supply side of investment trusts has dried up completely there's very little new supply so we haven't had uh, we had i was going to say we haven't had any, any ipos there's been one ipo which was a 30 million pound ipo that's the first ipo since late 2021 and we never we've never had a calendar year of uh, no ipo issue and no investment trust ipos um well not since the 1970s anyway um, it had, hasn't even before I can remember. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we've had almost no secondary offering, so no capital raising. We're now seeing increased buybacks, so that's a negative supply. Um, we're also seeing mergers and acquisitions. So recently we've seen acquisitions of Industrials REIT um, and also Civitas. So there's a negative supply from the M&A side. And, and what's most interesting, I think, is the continuation vote side of things. Um, I'd never really thought about continuation votes because while investment trusts were growing, it didn't really matter. Yeah. But most investment trusts in their articles have a shareholder vote every five years on whether the fund should continue. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, everybody, well, why, why wouldn't you vote for a fund to continue? Because if you like it, you know, you'd either, you, cool. you wouldn't own it if you didn't want to vote in favour of it. But now with these big, big discounts, so you know, empiric student property on a 25 or discount, um, you know, some of the generalist REITs on a 35, 40 discount. I mean, they're eye-watering discounts, aren't they? Yes, they're quite extreme. And, and, and you know, yeah. these are good assets. And if you look on the property space, you know, the property valuations have stabilised in, in, in Q1. So, you know, very, very wide by historic standards. And, and the thing is, as a shareholder, let's say you've got something on a 35 discount, you're paying 65 for it. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to get back 100 if you vote to wind it up. You know, you're economically massively incentivized just to wind it up. So we've seen a lot of funds either where the continuation votes failed, i.e. the investors have voted to wind it up, or you've got 
continuation votes coming up shortly where it's quite likely you'll see a wind up. You do need to, you know, it's, it's not as simple as just winding it up. You do need to do a lot of research. You need to make sure you, that the NAV that's being reported is accurate and, and realistic. You need to analyze the shareholder register to make sure that people are going to vote. Uh, you need to think about how long it's going to take the fund to sell assets because you've got a small discount and it's going to take them five years. You don't want to sit on something for five years. It's a liquid. But once you've done that analysis, there are a lot of interesting uh, things on, on, on very interesting discounts. You know, my favorite example recently has been MB Monthly Income. Um, that's it's, it's a very small trust, um, invests in basically high yield loans, variable rate loans, um, but it yields around 8%. And it's on about a nine discount and you'll get the assets back within a year. So, as I said, a lot of people like corporate bonds at the moment. You can get a four and a half percent yield on a corporate bond. Mm. Why do you want to do that when you can invest yeah. in MBMI and get eight plus eight? You're going to get 16 on MBMI, eight of yeah. which is, is pretty much guaranteed. So I think there's a lot of interesting um, transactions, a lot of interesting investments and, and the funds. We we're up to about five or six percent of the fund now in vehicles where they've been wind up. So effectively, we're getting this lovely tailwind of that uh, closing of the discount. So it's a very interesting time. But yeah, I do think investment trusts have been oversold. Uh, but right now, it feels like a really interesting time to start investing. Mm. And I guess from an advisor's point of view, this just plays into the the, the benefits of having an asset manager like Brooks McDonald, who is able to drill down and do the analysis on these kinds of investments like investment trusts, which the, the advisor themselves could never really have the, or in very few instances, would they have the resources to be able to do that? So it just, it just adds, it shows how you can add value, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great time to be an active manager because of that, exactly that. I mean, there are four of us working on the fund full time. So I mean, I spend 100% of my time on the fund and, and nothing else. And, and so effectively, we've got three of us full time doing research on each of these mm -hmm. trusts. Um, you know, the, the universe of trusts in the UK is quite broad. There are lots of interesting special situations. And, you know, a lot of funds, for instance, where you're talking about an, an investment trust that's only 100 million, you know, nobody mm -hmm. can afford the time to look at it. Um, if you're an IFA, you obviously want to spend time with your clients. If you're a wealth manager, you're probably too big to look at 100 million. Um, yeah. But where we can generate a 16% yield, I think it's worth our time looking at it. Well, I would agree. I would agree. Okay, now, thank you. That I think that pretty much uh, wraps up our time for today. I was very interested to hear what you had to say, particularly about for being the new tool. Let's just hope people at the Bank of England are, are listening and will we'll take some action and, and, and do as, as they should. And thank you for, as I say, being on the podcast today. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in today. And that'll be another great episode of IFA Talk next week. Now, thank you. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research, and whatever necessary, legal advice, should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.